Welcome to The Binge Cure with Dr. Nina. Today, you are going to learn how to outsmart emotional eating and live a life of happiness and joy without giving up the foods you love. Now, here is Dr. Nina. Hi, welcome to The Binge Cure with Dr. Nina. I'm your host, Dr. Nina Savelle Rocklin, psychoanalyst, and I am here to help you liberate yourself from emotional eating, take control of your life, and feel good in your body, all without dieting, spending hours in the gym, or counting a single macro. So today, we're going to talk about breaking the cycle of imposter syndrome and binge eating. We have all had moments, right? We've all had moments when we question our worth or abilities. But for some of us, this is a constant way of thinking. Maybe we feel like we're not smart enough to excel in our career, or we're not charming enough to be in a relationship, or we're not fit enough to be attractive, or we're not meeting expectations or or the expectations of others around us. Essentially, it's about having a pervasive sense of not being good enough. Even when you ace a project at work, even when you help a friend in need, even when you meet a challenge successfully, you still feel you haven't done enough or that something about you isn't good enough and you feel like an imposter when people acknowledge you. That pesky voice in your head that doesn't let you fully acknowledge or enjoy your accomplishment, that voice causes the not good enough feeling, which in turn causes the imposter syndrome. And all of that can lead to binge eating for comfort or distraction. It can lead to the binge zone. What is the binge zone? Well, lots of people find themselves in the zone during a binge eating episode. That zone is a mental and emotional space where you, you've you just You've checked out. You've checked out from the world around you. You're you're not feeling anything. You're not thinking anything. You're just in the zone. One of my patients calls it the dead zone. Um, so, you know what happens in this zone? Because it's it's not the dead zone for everyone. But basically, it it's it, it's several things. One of them is disconnection. So you feel like you're in a bubble. Everything gets blurred out except for eating your emotions, your thoughts, the world around you, it, it seems to have hit the mute button. It just fades into the background, disconnection or dissociation. Also, it's autopilot mode. It, it can almost feel like eating is happening on its own without you being consciously in, involved. That sounds strange, but if you've been in this zone, you know what I'm talking about. You're not even tasting or enjoying what you're eating. It's more like a desperate act that you want to stop. You want to stop, but you can't. It's the worst. Um, also, the zone is that that temporary relief. So it, it's like a refuge from all of those negative emotions, all of those painful, difficult emotions that we label as negative uh, an escape from stress, an escape from anxiety. It gives you relief being in this zone, but only for a very short time. It also brings emotional numbness, especially when you get that feeling of physical fullness. That just that just overshadows everything else. It's like you're physically so full, but you're emotionally so numb. And when you're numb, you're not feeling pain. 
right? You're not feeling the agony of whatever's going on. You're not feeling stress. You're just numbed out. And it's also that 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 zone is about tunnel vision. You know, it's the world just narrows down to eating as if everything else is in the background out of the frame of your life. It's just you and food and nothing else. But when you exit that zone, the shame and guilt, they come crashing in along with all the physical pain and discomfort that comes from binging. So you feel like a failure, you feel utter despair, you hate yourself, you vow to do better. You may also feel not good enough. You might be like, oh, if people really knew what I was doing, they, they would think differently of me. That's the imposter syndrome too. And the cycle continues because when you don't feel good and you don't feel good enough about yourself, when you feel bad and you don't know how to support yourself, encourage yourself, cheerlead yourself, be kind to yourself, well, you might use the zone, the binge zone, just to escape that bad feeling. Here's what's important to know. You are not alone. So many people who binge eat and feel this, they feel like they're the only ones. They may intellectually know, oh, I'm not the only one, but it feels like they're the only one. And here's the thing. People of various ages, backgrounds, walks of life, uh, male, female, non-binary, any age, any gender, experience this kind of self-doubt and chronic binge eating. So imposter syndrome is, you know, not feeling good enough, which which leads to stress, anxiety, depression, affects your self-esteem, affects your confidence, affects your performance at work, stifles your creativity, and prevents you from pursuing your best life, from being happy. In relationships, it can cause misunderstandings because you might be never feeling good enough, even though your partner tells you that you know they love you. You may not be able to take it in, which can be frustrating to the person who's saying, but I love you, I adore you, and you just can't believe them because you don't believe. You don't believe it. So how can you believe it if it's coming from them? Um, it, it also means that you might fear being judged by others and being found out, right? Unmasked as an imposter, someone's going to pull the curtain and, and realize, oh, you're not what we thought. And that is so horrifying. The idea of that is so horrifying. It can lead to isolation and then finding comfort in food instead of with people because people are unsafe. So all of this leads to eating for comfort and distraction from feeling upset. And recognizing the prevalence and, and the impact of this not good enough imposter syndrome feeling is the first step towards addressing it and creating change. Um, and again, I want you to do that from a place of, of, of curiosity, not criticism. I like to say that I'm a detective of the mind. And detectives don't judge clues. Detectives don't say, oh... That's a weird clue. What, what kind of clue is that? Oh, that's a disgusting clue. No, detective, detectives just say, okay, that's a clue. Now we know more. So if you're trying to solve the mystery of why you are doing something you don't want to do, 
binging, or why you're not doing something you want to do, take good care of yourself, maybe go to the gym, exercise more, eat more healthy, then you got to be a detective. You got to be curious and not critical. And let's look at imposter syndrome and that not good enough feeling and see how they are entwined because they are they're kind of separate but they're kind of uh they're they're connected. So here's how they relate and how they fuel each other because first we've got to see well what is the problem before we resolve the problem. So let's first talk about well what is the problem? What's going on? And then I'm going to give you some strategies on what to do differently. Okay. So both imposter syndrome and the not good enough feeling are rooted in self-doubt. They come from a place of, of, of self-doubt, fearing being exposed as a fraud. That's part of imposter syndrome, believing you haven't earned your success, while the not good enough feeling manifests as self-doubt in your value or, or your abilities. Um Another commonality is perfectionism. Oh, perfectionism causes so many problems. And you know what? Here's the thing. We're trying to be perfect. There is no perfect. I'm, I'm drinking out of a cup that says perfectly imperfect because that's the best we can do. Be perfectly imperfect. The only thing that's perfect are, you know, um, you know, isosceles triangles or something, you know, geometry can be perfect, I guess. You could have a perfect right angle. But as a person, we can't, you can't be perfect. Nobody can. But perfectionism plays a huge role. It, we set unrealistically high standards for ourselves. And then when we don't meet those standards, oh, we feel like an imposter. We feel like we're not good enough. Regardless of our actual accomplishments. So unfair to ourselves to be perfectionists. Um, also, seeking external validation is common in both imposter syndrome and that, um, you know, that cousin, the not good enough mindset. So many people rely on external praise or recognition to ease their self-doubt. But but then as as soon as the recognition is over, um, it it doesn't stick. It's like we're uh, Teflon, and just it just it just slides off. Got to be more Velcro than and less Teflon. So if you have a core belief and and an idea about yourself that underlies your sense of inadequacy, you've got to change it in order to be able to truly take in validation and to validate yourself. Um, also, fear of failure. Is is behind imposter syndrome. The that that fear of failure can be really crippling. Um, it it it's seen as evidence of your perceived fraudulence, right? If you fail, up oh, see, you're not as good as as people think you are. You're not as good as you're pretending to be. And if you have a not good enough mentality, it just reinforces your your perceived inadequacy. So when you have imposter syndrome, when you don't feel good enough, it leads to stress, anxiety, depression, burnout, which in turn, what does all this have to do with food? All of that leads to binge eating as a way of coping. Now, what causes this feeling? 
what causes you to feel like an imposter? What causes you to feel not good enough? And there are many reasons for this. It may be because of past experiences where you are constantly criticized or belittled, which can have a lasting effect on your self-esteem. It could be societal, cultural pressures that set absolutely unrealistic standards of success, of beauty, of perfection. There it is again. And anything short of that makes you feel inadequate, makes you feel like a failure. And so there are so many factors, both internal within us or external in our culture, in our society that contribute to this, this feeling. So one thing that's important to do is to start identifying the triggers to this sense of failure, this sense of inadequacy, this this imposter syndrome. And you want to start being really aware of the situations, the thoughts, or even the people that spark that, ooh, I'm not good enough, or ooh, if they only knew the real me kind of feeling. That is a crucial step to change. So imagine you're walking through a minefield. I don't know how many minefields there are these days. Maybe there are some in Ukraine. But imagine you're, it's like 1942 and you're in Europe and, and, and th there's a minefield. Wouldn't you want to know where the mines are so you can avoid stepping on them? Uh, yes. That's why recognizing your triggers is so important. And maybe you, you realize some things. Maybe you realize... You doubt yourself mostly when you're around that ultra successful friend whose life seems so perfect on multiple levels. Or maybe certain situations like attending big social gatherings or, or presenting in a meeting. Ooh, maybe those are the situations that give you that sense of inadequacy or not good enough. Sometimes your thoughts may, may trigger this feeling. Maybe you tell yourself you're not talented enough to write that book. You're not talented enough to finish that, that painting or, or show that painting in a gallery. Or maybe you're not fit enough to, to train for that marathon or to run for that race or, or to do whatever it is that you want to do. Or you're not um, uh, social enough to join that club, whatever it is. And then you, you feel terrible when you don't feel enough. You might also think you have to lose weight to be desired or accepted by others. You may feel really ashamed of your relationship with food and think that it itself diminishes you in some way. The fact that you struggle with food, binge it, whether it's binging, stress eating, any kind of unhappy, unhealthy relationship with food, maybe that alone is what you think makes you less than. So these triggers, as you can see, they can be overt or they can be subtle, but you really need to do some introspection. You need to use your curiosity. Remember, curious, not critical. You need to be curious about them in order to identify them. And once you recognize that there are certain situations, there are certain thought patterns that lead to that shameful feeling of, of, of not being good enough or not being what people think you are, then you can really create change. You can learn how to navigate those situations better, differently. The idea isn't to avoid them 
completely, avoid these triggers completely. That, that's often impossible. But you can develop strategies that help you deal with those situations differently. And that helps you develop a more confident, healthier you. Now, how, how specifically do you identify these patterns? Okay, clearly it is so important to identify these patterns that make us feel not good enough. But what if you have no idea? You're listening and you're thinking, okay, I don't know. I have no idea. I can't. It's just all of a sudden, I just get that feeling. I, I don't know where it comes from. It doesn't seem to come from anywhere. Help. Okay. Well, one way, again, stay curious and investigate your thoughts. So start by reflecting on your day or your week. And think about the moments where you felt a dip in your self-esteem. You know, maybe you were feeling okay about yourself. Maybe you were feeling decently good about yourself. Maybe you were feeling just basic, you know, neither good nor bad, but you weren't feeling bad. And all of a sudden, there was a dip in your self-esteem, in your, in your feeling about yourself. Well, start to track. Wh where were you? Were you home? Were you home? Were you driving? Were you with other people? Were you at work? Were you doing a project? What was going on? Where were you? What time of day was it? Get very granular, very, very specific. What were you doing? What were you doing when suddenly you became aware of th this thought? Who were you with? What thoughts were going through your mind? Again, it takes practice to start to think in this way and to ponder, hmm, what was, you know, what was going on? But the more that you do it, the easier it gets. And once you do it, you will start noticing patterns. You're going to notice you feel insecure or self-conscious when you're around, say, a particular group of people or when you're working on something that challenges you. You're going to notice, oh, okay, that's, that's a trigger. And then now you know that, and then you can start developing new ways of dealing with those situations, of thinking about those people. Another helpful tool is journaling, which is a great way to track your, your feelings and your thoughts. Um, whenever you're feeling down, whenever you're doubting yourself, just jot down the thoughts, the situation you're in, and your emotional response. What were you feeling? And over time, again, you're going to start to see patterns emerging from your, from, you know, all your journal entries. And if it's still challenging to spot those triggers on your own, a therapist or the right coach can provide a different perspective and help you identify those patterns that you might be too close to see. After all, it's impossible to be objective about our subjective lives. It's impossible to be in your life, yet be able to observe yourself living your life. So that's why it's hard to know ourselves. Um, so keep in mind, this process, it takes time. And it is okay not to have the answers right away. The important thing is you're taking steps towards understanding yourself better instead of criticizing yourself and labeling yourself as not good enough, which then makes you feel like an imposter. Be kind to yourself during this process. All right, let me tell you about Lily. So Lily began struggling with binge eating disorder in college. And despite 
you know, she thought her life was pretty well adjusted, doing pretty well. Nothing was overtly bad. She had a perfectly fine childhood. Like nothing was, nothing bad was going on, but she still, and she, and she was doing perfectly well in school, by the way, she still had this feeling of not being good enough and felt like an imposter because people would always say, oh my God, Lily, you're so smart. You're so this, you're so that. Whew. She couldn't take it in. She didn't feel like she embodied the things that people saw in her. So we started peeling back the layers to uncover the origins of this not good enough imposter feeling. All right, so here's the thing. The answer is usually located in the same place for everybody, the past. And I'm often told, oh my gosh, the past is the past. Why do you want to talk about the past? I've talked about the past forever. Nothing ever changed. Well, of course, if you talk about the past just as if it happened in the past, you're just going to rehash it over and over and over. This happened, this happened, and I felt this. And that, after a while, has very little utility. That doesn't help. However, we want to understand the past as it affects our present. Because often the past is not in the past. It's just being replayed, unbeknownst to ourselves, in the present. As an example, if you have a, a critical parent and that parent was constantly criticizing you, you bring home a report card with all A's and one B and they say, what's with the B? Or, you know, you got all, or you get all A's and they say, why didn't you get an A plus? Like constantly critical, nothing is good enough. And, and that's what happened in the past. And yet you in the present start doing the same thing to yourself. Nothing's ever good enough. You do something well, but you think, oh, I could have done it better. Now the past is replaying in the present. That's why we want to look at the, at the past from a, a perspective of depth psychology, which is another name for psychoanalysis. Um, we want to we go deep into the past, go deeper, go home, so that we can better understand the present. So let's, let's journey into Lily's past. When she had a great relationship with her parents, but they were both working professionals and she spent every afternoon after school with her grandmother. And she would be with her grandmother all afternoon until her parents picked her up after work. Now her grandmother was critical. Her grandmother was a perfectionist. And her absolutely unattainable expectations impacted Lily's sense of self-worth. And by the way, then her parents, they were so exhausted by the time they got home. They couldn't do more than, you know, make dinner, watch TV together, and, 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 and go to bed. So even though her parents were loving, um, Lily yearned for her grandmother's approval. We often yearn for the, the, the approval of the person who is withholding. And of course, it never came. So eventually, Lily began looking at herself through her grandmother's eyes, magnifying every perceived failure and feeling terrible about herself. And in college, she began binge eating as a way to cope with her feelings of despair over being hopelessly inadequate, according to herself. And then when she did succeed, when she did do well, what happened? She felt like an imposter. 
or if they really knew, or somehow I've fooled them, or I've just made them think those good things about me, she would think. But here's what happened. By facing those painful memories and grieving her unmet childhood needs, she began to separate her self-worth from her past experiences and from her present accomplishments and stop needing external validation from people who were withholding like her grandmother. And she challenged and she changed the narrative of inadequacy and she formed a new perspective about herself. And the more she healed those emotional wounds of the past, the less she binged. That's how it worked. So Lily created a new relationship with herself, one built on self-compassion, understanding, acceptance. Imagine that. Rather than self-criticism and blame. And this shows exactly why it is so important to treat the roots of binge eating disorder instead of the behavior itself. And those roots can be hidden from our awareness when Lily was binging she or feeling bad about herself, she wasn't thinking, oh, this is because I have this and I've internalized my grandmother's critical perspective of me and now I'm perpetuating that. No, she just felt bad. But the roots were in her past. The roots were how she had identified with that criticism and judgment. And when we dug out those roots, guess what? Everything changed with, with food. It also changed with, with her sense of self. She no longer felt like an imposter. She no longer felt as if she were not good enough. Um, and she was able to embrace her good enoughness without thinking that she needed to be perfect to be good enough. So again, these roots can be hidden from our awareness, but they have everything to do with the way we see ourselves and the way we see the world. So Lily not only broke free from binge eating, but also she reclaimed or actually, you know, claimed a sense of self-worth and self-acceptance. And that allowed her to live a much more fulfilling life. So um, we're gonna we're gonna take a break soon. Um, again, what we've talked about so far, talked about, you know, what is imposter syndrome? What is the binge zone and how are those two things related? Well, we go into the binge zone to escape the, the, the not good enough feeling that comes from the imposter syndrome. And what causes the good enough feeling? We're going to look at you know, the ideas, the beliefs, the, the notions that you've internalized, the, the, the language that you use to talk to yourself about, the people in your life, the situations that can cause you to feel not good enough. The uh, comparison, also comparison, is, is the thief of joy. When we compare ourselves unfavorably to others, we're going to feel bad. And then, of course, I shared Lily's story as an example of how when you heal the past, you, you change your, your present. So we're going to take a break in, in just a moment. Um, when we come back, I'm going to talk about the role of negative self-talk and cognitive distortions, ideas that we have about ourselves that seem very real, but they're not. Um, and I'm going to give you a blueprint for battling negativity. I'm going to tell you how to challenge and change your negative thoughts. I'm also going to teach you how to cultivate self-compassion and strategies 
to build self-worth because that's the way that you start feeling better about yourself. And when you do that and you feel good, guess what? No more imposter syndrome, no more binging. So I'm going to take a break now. I'll see you in a little bit. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Are you tired of the endless cycle of dieting and binging? Ready to break free from emotional eating and regain control of your life? Look no further than The Binge Cure with Dr. Nina, the transformative radio show that will empower you on your journey to food freedom. Dr. Nina is here to guide you every step of the way. Join her as she delves into the true causes of binge eating, uncovers hidden triggers, and gives you effective strategies for lasting change. With practical tips and inspiring stories of transformation, The Binge Cure with Dr. Nina will help you nurture a healthier mindset, embrace self-compassion, and rediscover your true self. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to The Binge Cure with Dr. Nina. Have questions for Dr. Nina? Join her on the show at 866-472-5792. That's 866-472-5792. Now back to the show. Welcome back. We are talking about breaking the cycle of imposter syndrome and binge eating. And I had just been talking about Lily's story and how she uh, healed both her sense of inadequacy, not good enoughness, and stopped feeling like an imposter when she realized why she started feeling that way to begin with. Let's talk about the role of negative self-talk and cognitive distortions in developing that sense of imposter syndrome or not good enough feeling. So when we first started working together, Lily, every time she would do something like where she messed up slightly, she would think, oh my God, I'm such a failure. I can't do anything right. That, that people, that is negative self-talk in a nutshell. There it is. Negative self-talk can make minor problems feel gigantic. And it causes you to underestimate your abilities. Um, and so cognitive distortions are like those, uh, let me put it this way. They're like those funhouse mirrors that distort your reflection. Have you ever been to Disneyland or Disney World and you look in one of those mirrors and you look like you're 
you know, three feet tall and six feet wide, or you just look like an alien from uh, that scene in Star Wars in the bar, the very first Star Wars, the best Star Wars. I'm just saying, okay. <laughs> um, they distort your thoughts instead of your appearance. They make you perceive situations as much worse as they actually are. For example, you might be prone to all or nothing thinking. That means if something is imperfect, you see it as a total disaster. Uh, one way this shows up with food is, oh my gosh, I ate three cookies. I've blown it. The day is ruined. I might as well now have all the cookies. And by the way, since I've already blown it, I might as well have everything else that I haven't been letting myself eat on my meal plan and I'm going to eat the kitchen. That's how neg that, that's how all or nothing thinking shows up with binge eating. Or, or maybe you overgeneralize, which means one negative experience has you convinced that you're doomed to a lifetime of failures. Um, so overgeneralization is when one thing happens and it gets blown into this big, huge, sweeping conclusion about all things and all time. Like you go on a date and it is an epic fail. We've all been on those dates, haven't we? Boy, I went on a hundred plus dates before I met my husband. I went on some epic fails, people. There was the guy who talked to me in third person voice. Seriously. He was like, does Nina like her dinner? <laughs> oh God. How is Nina having a nice time? <sighs> I can't even explain it. That was a doozy. Okay. That was an epic fail. That was an epic fail. But let's say that you are prone to overgeneralization and you go on a date and it is an epic fail. You decide you are destined to be alone for the rest of your life. So you're letting one bad date influence your view of your future. Hmm. And then there's mental filter. That's like overgeneralization's evil twin. It's when you focus on the one bad thing and completely ignore anything good. So imagine your partner, uh, so assuming you've gone on epic fail dates and then eventually you meet the right person and you, you have a relationship and your partner says something critical about you, to, uh, to you or about you. And you decide your relationship is doomed right? Completely forgetting all of the good times you've had, all the wonderful times. It just becomes up, oh, you know, it's over. So you're looking at everything through this negative filter. Another one is called disqualifying the positive. And that means taking in all the good stuff, acknowledging it exists, but then just throwing it out the window. So let me give you an example. It's like you're afraid you're not doing a good enough job at work. And then you have a great performance review, right? You, you have imposter syndrome. You think you fooled the bosses. You fooled your supervisor. They pull you in for your review and they tell you what an amazing job you did. Do you think that that makes you feel better if you've got imposter syndrome and, and you're prone to disqualifying the positive? No, no. Even though you get a great performance review, you tell yourself it's just because your boss didn't want to hurt your feelings. 
or they don't really see you. They're, they're, they're not really seeing the whole picture. In other words, the good happens, but you totally disqualify it. You're turning positives into negatives. Um, mind reading is when you think you know exactly what someone else is thinking. You see someone scowling and immediately decide they, they might be judging you. It's actually happened um, in, in, in a group. Um, you know, I, all right, this may be TMI, but oh, I had the worst cramps, the worst cramps. And I grimaced and a person in my group said, oh, you're, you're judging me. You, you, you hate me. You're, you know, she had this whole idea about what my grimace meant. She didn't imagine that maybe it, it had nothing to do with her. So something happens like that, and you t you just you just think, oh my gosh, it's it's evidence for you, for whatever your worst fear is. Often when we when we read minds, when we think we know what is going on in other people's minds, it's actually what's going on in our own mind. A uh, classic example of this is I I once treated a, a singer whose, whose name I can't reveal, but she had terrible, terrible stage fright because she thought that people in the audience were looking at her thinking, oh my God, she's huge. Oh, she doesn't sound very good. She sounds so much better, uh, you know, on Spotify. She's, she's, she's terrible. She's not as good as we thought she was, right? Imposter syndrome, like crazy. And mind reading. Now, guess what? All the things she thought that the audience was thinking about her, those were the thoughts she had about herself. She didn't think she sounded as good live as she did on Spotify. Well, who does? She thought that that she was looking too big and that she'd gained weight and that that's you know that that and that's all that she could see when she looked in the mirror she, all the negative things that she thought other people were thinking of her about her she thought of herself so she was projecting her own negative thoughts about herself into the audience back at her that was her mind reading and well what we did was we we had to look at her own self-judgment and all of that. And as we processed that and she felt good about herself, she was eventually able to go out on tour. And she called me and, and she said, Dr. Nina, I think I have brand new people coming to my shows. Like I can tell how much they like me. I really feel so good. Well, what was happening is no, new people were not coming to her shows. Instead of her projecting her own mean, judgmental, critical voice into or perspective on herself into the audience back at her, she was now projecting her kind, accepting, uh, benevolent, good-hearted perspective on herself into the audience and back at her. So she was, that's sort of, you know, she's, she was mind reading the audience, but really that's just a reflection of her own mind. So if you're mind reading other people, that's often a, a reflection of your thoughts about yourself. Um, some other cognitive distortions include fortune telling. That is another classic. That's when you predict the future without any solid evidence. Like you're single and you decide you're going to be alone forever just because you haven't found someone yet. You see your prediction, actually your fear, but you see your pr prediction as a solid fact, 
when it is just one of many, many possibilities. So these are just some of the distortions that can impact your perspective on yourself, on your life, and on your sense of your future. And they make you feel really bad in the present. And when you feel bad in the present, but your mind is occupied with all of these horror stories about your future and yourself, you can't simultaneously think these terrible things and reassure yourself, validate, acknowledge, comfort yourself, encourage yourself. Those things don't go together. So what happens? How do you get away from that that terrible feeling? Food. It is often the solution to the problem. It is not the problem. So recognizing these patterns in your thinking is essential because they warp your per, your perception of yourself, your abilities, your enoughness. They make you think you're not good enough, even when the evidence says otherwise. And here again, again, I have good news. You learn this. You can unlearn this. Once you're aware of these patterns, you can you can work on changing them. And you can move towards a more balanced, positive, realistic outlook of yourself. It's kind of like 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 wearing glasses with the wrong prescription. Everything is hard to see and it kind of hurts. But once you correct your vision, you can see yourself and the world around you with with much more clarity. All right, so I promised you a blueprint for battling negativity. Let's talk about how to challenge and change these negative thoughts. Now, we cannot fight an invisible army of thoughts and ideas. We just get beaten up and we feel emotionally battered. Only by making that army visible can we create change. Then you see what you're fighting, then you can fight back. So how do we do that? Well, we've already started by recognizing when you are indeed having negative self-talk. When you say, I'm a failure, or if you talk to yourself in the second person, which is not good, you're a failure. Or, you know, I can't do anything right. That means uh, you're, 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 you need to identify, well, where do these ideas come from? Identify the cognitive distortions. That helps you put that first you identify the cognitive distortions that I just discussed. Then you you put on your your boxing gloves. I know I am mixing metaphors all over the place. I have an army and then I have boxing gloves. Uh, bear with me. <laughs> I like weird metaphors. Then you can fight back is what I'm saying. So one of the most effective techniques to change your thinking is cognitive restructuring, which is a, a very fancy way of saying changing your mindset. And it's done first by by questioning the validity of your negative thoughts. And again, it's not just logical, it's also psychological, but sometimes we want to use logic. Imagine you make a minor mistake and your immediate thought is, I'm a failure. I am such a failure. Well, instead of accepting that, challenge it. Ask yourself, am I really a failure or did I just fail? Am I really a failure? Do I... Do I embody failure? Or did I just make a mistake? Does one mistake actually define my entire worth? Spoiler alert, no, it does not. Think of what we say to babies when they take their first steps. A baby takes a step 
and they inevitably, of course, fall down. And we don't say, well, that baby, that baby fell down. That baby just failed. That baby's never going to walk. That baby has failed at walking. That baby's a complete failure. No, that is absurd. We would never say that to a baby. We cheer the baby on. We say, you got it. One more step. You've got this. Good job. You can do it. So imagine talking to yourself in the same way, encouraging and supporting yourself when you fail, because failure is inevitable. We all fail sometimes, but that doesn't make us failures. There's a big difference between failing and being a failure. Being a failure is personalizing your, your failure. Failing is something that is just part of life that is a stepping stone to success often. And it's important to balance that negative thought with reality. Remind yourself of your strengths and your accomplishments so that you can see yourself in a, in a more balanced way. Also, ask yourself what you would say to a friend. If a friend had a similar failure, would you say, well, you're never going to succeed. That's it. You're doomed. <laughs> you're a failure. No, we would not. All right. Let's talk about, let's talk about Jake. So Jake had wrestled with this not good enough mentality and feeling like an imposter for as long as he could remember, back to childhood. He, he believed he was never going to live up to his full potential, and he also struggled with binge eating just about every night. And when we began to unlock the, the doors to his past, we could see that this sense of inadequacy came from his past. Like I said, it always does. Now, what was going on in Jake's past? Well, he had two very high-achieving siblings who had gone into the same profession as their parents, you know, the family business. His siblings also went to Ivy League schools. So they went to Ivy League schools and they became respected professionals in the same, um, the same profession as the, the parents, but not Jake. Jake really struggled to find his way in life, and he didn't have the grades or really the desire to follow the same track as his, his brother and his sister. So even though he logically knew that his career choice that he eventually made was a good fit for him, and he was happy with that choice, he didn't feel good about himself. It was like by, by, by failing to follow in his parents' and siblings' footsteps, he had, he had set himself up to never feel like he was good enough. And this manifested through binge eating as a coping mechanism, because if you're always feeling like, I'm not good enough, I'm not good enough, I suck, I'm not, nothing I do is good enough, nothing I do will ever be good enough. Yeah, that good thing happened, but that was a fluke. Uh, it's not going to sustain itself, or I just fooled them, all of that. That is so upsetting, depressing, and anxiety-producing that Jake binged as a way of coping with those feelings, to, to comfort, to distract, to numb himself, to go into that binge zone we talked about earlier. So in our work together, Jake realized that, that his binge eating was not, as he thought it was, about a lack of self-control. It was not 
even anything to do with food. It it reflected the unresolved emotional turmoil within him. His eating disorder, and by the way, binge eating disorder is the most prevalent eating disorder there is. More people have binge eating disorder than anorexia and bulimia combined. Way, way, way more. And probably even more people have it than is recognized because they don't think they have an eating disorder. They think they lack willpower. They think they lack control. They think they're food addicts. No. Binge eating disorder is diagnosable and it is treatable. So Jake came to realize that his eating disorder, the binge eating, was a desperate attempt to symbolically fill the void left by his his lack of self-worth and lack of self-acceptance. These were the, the holes in his soul that he symbolically filled every night with food. Not that he was consciously aware of that. That's the thing about, about depth work. You're not consciously thinking about it. You're consciously thinking, what's wrong with me? Why can't I stop eating? I, I am such a failure. I have no willpower. I have no control. My God, what's wrong with me? I, 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 I'm a mess. That's the conscious thought. But once you realize that unconsciously that there's a hidden, there's a hidden mm, purpose behind the behavior. And when you can discern what that hidden purpose is and find new ways to fill the void in his case, everything changes. So by coming to terms with the past, by by really coming to terms with the fact that he was different from his family, but that didn't mean that he was diminished or less than, and by, by fully owning his choice and processing his pain over not fitting into his original group, his family, he was able to challenge that not good enough narrative that had kept him in a cycle of self-deprecation and and binge eating. He developed healthier coping mechanisms. He began rebuilding his self-esteem from a place of self-compassion and from understanding instead of from self-judgment. And he changed the way he thought about himself from not good enough to worthy, to capable, to good enough. And he found new and healthier ways to cope with his anxieties um, by changing the way he responded to himself. Whereas before, when 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 he felt bad, anxious, or depressed, or both, he would use food to medicate himself, to, you know, comfort himself or to um, kind of dampen his mm, anxiety, like to to just, when you're anxious, you feel really intense. So it made him relax. So Jake's story highlights the role of self-compassion and self-acceptance in developing a healthier mindset. How do you you cultivate self-compassion? Well, let's go back to the idea of um, making a small mistake. Remember, everyone makes mistakes. Everyone, everyone makes mistakes. So, you know, remember that. If you're feeling down, remind yourself, it's okay to have an off day. If you're feeling lonely, that's a state of being. It is not a reflection of your likability and lovability. Embracing 
Self-compassion means acknowledging that you're human. Yes, you are perfectly imperfect. And like everyone else, you're a perfectly imperfect work in progress. Self-acceptance is about accepting yourself wholly and completely, flaws and all. It doesn't mean complacency. It doesn't mean you're not striving for improvement. It means you don't beat yourself up constantly for failing to be perfect or meet some unreasonable expectations. So learning to accept yourself with all your strengths and weaknesses is liberating. It allows you to shift from a mindset of, I'm not good enough, to I am enough, just as I am. And this is a real game changer. Thinking about what you like about yourself and focusing on that rather than only focusing on what you don't like about yourself. It really switches the the mental filter in your mind. And when you find evidence of what you like about yourself, you're going to feel better. When you feel better, you're less likely to use binge eating to cope. And um, uh, one way to do this also is to to set realistic goals. It's easy to, 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 to make a... a like an intention to do some crazy, ridiculous, impossible sky high goal. And we live in a world that praises the exceptional and the overachievers. We can get caught up in that. But if we're constantly setting goals that are out of reach, we're setting ourselves up to be disappointed and have self-doubt. It's like deciding to, to compete in a marathon and expecting yourself to just go out and run 26 miles. That's not gonna happen. So instead, set a goal to run a single mile and then another. And eventually you work your your way up to running the distance. And then you feel good about that mile instead of bad about what you're not doing. And setting smaller, more achievable goals that lead up to your larger goal and celebrating your victories along the way, really, that does wonders for your self-esteem. If you're training for a marathon and you say, oh, I only ran a mile. How am I going to run another 26 miles? You're going to feel bad. But if you say, I ran a mile, this is great. I'm going to keep adding to this, but I feel really good about myself. So that it, that is a game changer. And in, in terms of binge eating, many people set goals to be good, quote unquote, or only eat certain foods while limiting other foods this sets them up to binge. So instead, make a different kind of goal. Set an intention to be curious about why you're turning to food rather than focusing on what you are eating. Why do I want it? Is it because it's forbidden and I can't have it? Is it because um, I'm trying to soothe myself, comfort myself? There's some reason. And remember, your self-worth is not determined by the goals you achieve. It is about who you are as a person. And the more you like who you are, the better you feel. The better you feel, the less you binge. And that is our show for today. Thank you so much for joining me here on The the Binge Cure with Dr. Nina. I am here every Thursday at noon Pacific on Voice America. And if you would like a deeper dive into this topic, be sure to get your copy of my best-selling book, The Binge Cure, Seven Steps to Outsmart Emotional Eating, and also my new workbook accompaniment, The Binge Cure Journal. You can get them both on Amazon and they will help you create liberation from binge eating disorder for good. Stay curious, not critical. I'll see you next week. 
Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of The Binge Cure with Dr. Nina. Each week, she offers valuable insights to stop emotional eating and give steps to lead a joyous life. Tune in next Thursday at 12 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Thank you.